Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36 as we continue our journey. We have come to a passage of Scripture that's affectionately known as the great interlude here in the book of Isaiah, and it provides a historical backdrop um, for what Isaiah has been saying all along, which is there's this imminent disaster that's coming upon the nation Israel that he's now given us a preview of their only hope, which is that future kingdom that they need to trust in God. Uh, As we just sang, we will not be shaken, amen? We will trust in our God. That was the message to the children of Israel. They're the remnant now, Judah, that's trapped inside of Jerusalem with the Assyrian army surrounding them. And so from chapters 36 to 39, we have primarily historical data And again, I want to remind you the reason that uh, I prepare these slides so that uh, you can take some of this stuff home. There's a lot of things that you can do to build on your own biblical knowledge. And I'm going to give you uh, a bit of a history lesson tonight and a little bit uh, in, in our next study as well. But it's important for a very, very, very key reason. And that reason is, I think most of you believe that the Bible is true. Amen? that it is God's word to mankind, that God, over a period of about 1,500 years or so, wrote 66 books, at least 40 different authors, and through a very long period of time, he authored this book that we have, that we call the Bible, which we believe, uh, insofar as it's been correctly translated, that it is God's word to mankind. And the reason I just said what I said is that there are uh, minutia in the Bible that you may have a majority text versus a minority text or a word here or a word there. But the overall understanding that we have from Scripture has not changed in a very, very, very long time. And so the next question becomes, can we actually trust the veracity of Scripture? Can we believe it to be authored by someone other than human beings? You see, there are human authors. In this case, it's the prophet Isaiah. But the actual author, the Bible says in and of itself, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is the author of God's word. And as you might expect, if God authors something, it's going to be perfect. That it will contain no errors. That there'll be no contradictions. And this is one of those things that people throughout history have attempted to use to try and attack the Bible that is not true. And high on that list is the historicity of Scripture. In other words, are these places actually real? And until Israel became a nation in 1948, many of these cities that we are reading about here in the book of Isaiah uh, were little known. They had not archaeologically been excavated. The various kings and kingdoms uh, that we find discussed here were little known. 
not well excavated. But since the mid-1940s, after the Second World War, until our present day and time, there has been massive archaeological undertaking in the Levant, the Middle East, the whole of Israel, the, the country slogan might as well be, turn a shovel, find the Bible. It, it is everywhere something gets turned over, they find some evidence of something that Scripture speaks to. And so these chapters provide us historical references to kings, kingdoms, and to those that were alive at that time that Isaiah references. And if one could prove that these kings never existed, that these kingdoms never existed, that these cities named never existed, then you do not have the depth of proof uh, that I believe we do have, which is the Bible is true, and you can trust what it says. And so would you join me? We're going to pray, and we'll pray, of course, for all that's going on uh, in our state, in our country, and we'll pray for our time in the Word as well. Father, we have come, really as your children, as those that want to draw near to you and Father, we want you to speak to us through your word, and so we pray that your word would come alive. And God, while we ask for that, we also have to ask for you to have your hand upon those that are in harm's way with the fires that are burning here, ravaging our state, Lord. There are so many, we couldn't name them all by name. Countless people have lost their homes, many have lost their lives, uh, and Lord, the, the toll on the firefighters and especially the air crews that are trying to prevent these fires from spreading and the bulldozer operators and the hand crews and the smoke jumpers that have come from all over the country and from other countries. Lord, we thank you for that, that group of engineers that arrived last week from Israel. Lord, we thank you for them and we pray that you put your hand over them and over those that are uh, fighting these fires. Lord, put them out. Would you bring rain? Lord, our state needs rain. Would you bring rain? to put these fires out. Lord, we pray for a vaccine for the coronavirus. Lord, we are, we are, we're tired, we're worn out. Many of us are hurting financially. God, there's untold mental toll that's been taken on families and marriages and Lord, relationships and businesses. Lord, the, the financial devastation is great and we would simply ask that Lord, if we've learned our lesson if we've heard your voice, Lord, that your people would turn and pray, and we ask that you would bring uh, an end to this through a vaccine. Lord, we pray for racial reconciliation to, to fall through your love, Lord, that people would recognize the value, the commonality that we have as human beings created in your image, that we have been commanded by you to love one another as you have first loved us. Lord, help that love to spread. Let it begin here in this place. Let us look past the color of each other's skin and the neighborhoods that we live in and that your holy love would just flow out of us, Lord, that we would seek to be changers of the paradigm, Lord, that, that has been the tension and the violence that has come over our country. Lord, all of it, everywhere it exists, would you root it out? And pray for those that are hurting Lord, tonight that don't have jobs, they've fallen on 
horrible financial troubles because of this pandemic. God, would you please, in Jesus' name, revive Lord, our economy again. We ask that you would get those kids that are sitting home with moms and dads that don't know what to do and don't know how to homeschool them. Uh, would you make that vaccine available so that the schools could open and those kids back to socializing one with another and those things that are so important that can't be done through a computer screen. Father, we pray for what you're going to do tomorrow night with our youth or as we attempt to make some normality out of all of this. We pray that your hand would be upon it. And Spirit, we pray that you'd fall now. You're the author of these words that were written by Isaiah, and so we pray that they would be to us as you intended them, instruction for life and godliness, that we might have what we need in these last days. Bless your word as we study it, in Jesus' name, amen. So this great interlude, you can find almost a carbon copy of it in 2 Kings beginning in chapter 17, but 17, 18, really part of chapter 19. And so it, it leads us to a couple of things that we probably should get out of the way right at the beginning, and that is Isaiah likely had the historical records of the kings and of the priests of Judah. And so some of this may be what was known of history. And the reason that that is important is because it is now being reinvigorated by being written again so that we would have more than one place that we can find it. And so the facts that we have here, if we were to compare them to Mesopotamian society, specifically the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which is the ruling empire of the day during this time, if we were to find error, then we would find error in our Bible. We'd be looking at the Bible going, well, that king never existed, or that kingdom never existed, or that city never existed, and we know this. We've excavated this area that it's supposed to be in. There's nothing there. And the fact of the matter is, one of the things that we can thank the Assyrians for, among many things, is the fact that they were tremendous chroniclers of their own history, very specifically the Assyrian kings. And so if you get an opportunity... Uh, you, there are traveling expositions that go all over the world um, that take primarily the writings of Ashurbanipal, which is uh, right in the middle of the Neo-Assyrian kings, and took his orthostats and stellas and these plaster writings that uh, have been excavated, and they travel around the country, and they very frequently will end up at either the Getty or the Getty Villa right here in L.A., so you can actually go see many of these things uh, that I will reference tonight, at least some of them. And so when we look at this, in verse 1 it says, And now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. So if we're looking for a historical record, we want to find the record of King Hezekiah. That one we have. Uh, when you travel to Israel, one of the things that we do is we actually travel through this incredible aqueduct that's mentioned here. Uh, in some ways, as we find this aqueduct that takes water to the fuller's field uh, from the upper pool, which is coming next. And so uh, that Sennacherib, or Sennacherib, whichever way you want to pronounce it, I believe it is Sennacherib, uh, king of Assyria, uh, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So it says all the fortified cities. So there's, there's an inference here that there were fortified cities all over Judah. That would be the southern kingdom. 
So that's the area of Jerusalem, goes all the way to the coast, to the city of Jaffa. Uh, it would go as far south, perhaps, as Beersheba, maybe down into the Gaza Strip, uh, which is now part of the Palestinian-controlled territories. Uh, but we should be finding the remnants of ancient fortified cities in that area. Lo and behold, there are dozens of them. There's not one, there's not two, there are dozens. And that the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army, and now we have a specific city, the city of Lachesh, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Lachesh has been excavated. Not only has it been excavated in Israel today, but it has also been mentioned uh, in these various pieces of information that we'll get to in just a little bit uh, that were drafted by these kings trying to chronicle their war record for their kingdom. And so King Hezekiah is at Jerusalem and he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool. So there needs to be an upper pool. There's an upper pool. What is there? There's a lower pool. There's a lower pool. We happen to know what the name of the lower pool is, the pool of Siloam. And so there is an upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. So the Fuller's Field needs to be beyond this. It's outside of the city. And so we can look for these places in modern-day Israel and see if we actually find them. I can tell you emphatically that that aqueduct is there. I've traveled through it. I've got video of myself and Pastor Rob and a couple of us traveling through it about knee-deep in water as the water still flows in that same spring that flowed during the time of King Hezekiah. It's the reason that the Jebusites originally dug this water tunnel that was expanded by King Hezekiah to provide water so that inside of a fortified city, one of the quickest ways for you to get taken was you'd run out of water. So if you have a permanent water supply inside of a fortified city, um, you have one of the two things that you need. You're also going to need enough food to withstand that. So you ought to be finding large granaries, buildings that are largely empty, uh, that look like they were storehouses. And so in the excavation of the city of David, when you travel to Jerusalem today, one of the things you find is these things. They are there. You can go visit them. If you have your phones out, uh, there is a photo that's there, and it is actually from the Lakesh panels uh, that were found in the 1940s to 1960s. Um, they were excavated in what we would call today modern-day Iraq, um, just south of the city of Nineveh. And so in the British Museum, which is where most of these are located permanently, uh, you have this tablet that's dated from uh, 701 B.C. of prisoners. And you might notice if you have that out, you can look at it, uh, you can see the guys with the different hair. And the reason that that's important is there is another panel that tells us who they are because the other panel tells us that not only are they Hebrews, but we're given the name of one of the kings uh, that's in the particular panel. His name is Jehu, who happens to also be in your Bible. And so we have a panel that's stated from the destruction of the city of Lachesh that contains both Assyrians and Hebrews named by name, and that in this case, something horrible is happening to them. They're being skinned alive. The Assyrians were a violent people, 
And they very often employed what we would call psychological warfare. And they bragged about it. And the crazy thing is, they bragged about it in clay tablets, orthostats, stellas, cylinders, things that were inscribed primarily in cuneiform writing to such a degree that they tell us exactly what they did when they conquered cities. And one of the things they did was send a Rabshakeh, or the prince of the rulers, or the ruler of the princes, it goes both ways, which would be a modern-day way for us to say they would send the Assyrian secretary of state to go and talk to the king or the kingdom that they were about to take, and they would offer them, in essence, bribery and or threaten them with destruction. And this is really important, given what we're going to find as we finish the rest of chapter 36. And so if that's true, and if we can find the archaeological evidence that that occurred, and it's in the proper time frame, then it adds credence to the fact that these words that are recorded, not only here, but also in the book of Kings, uh, that, that we have a very high degree of likelihood that, that we have found real history. And so we have here that it says that there were fortified cities. Well, the truth of the matter is there have been excavated to this date 36 fortified cities in the southern Levant. All of them have destruction in them from the cities being taken, and all of them from the late Bronze Era or the early Iron Age. Guess when these kings were around? The, early, the very early beginnings of the Iron Age. The reason we know that is the Assyrians were one of the first to employ iron weapons in warfare. They moved from bronze and began to produce iron weapons. One who was greatly known to have employed those iron weapons was King Sennacherib. And so as you look at this next photo, if you have your phone, you can take it out. There he is. There is Jehu bowing down. Uh, we're told who this is in the, in the panel directly below this. Probably most of you don't read cuneiform, neither do I. And so we'll have to take their word that that's what it says. But there's no reason for a secular archaeologist uh, to misinterpret words when their career hangs in the balance because they would simply then be able to be called a fraud in all that they do. And so these panels are not necessarily Christian archaeologists, though some of them are, uh, not necessarily Christian archaeologists that have determined that's what's going on here. So here you have Assyrian army soldiers parading a group of captured Hebrews, including a king who's named by name Jehu. And so when you run through the history of the captives of Lachesh and the various fortified cities around that region, you find this long list of Assyrian kings uh, that, that battled with the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And as you go through the archaeological record, uh, by the time you, you get through all of it, you're going to find that named by name, there are 10 biblical Hebrew kings that are mentioned in Assyrian writings. In other words, those things that we would call archaeological evidence. And the reason that this to me is so important is when I look at those names, 
names like Omri and Ahab and Jehu and Menahem and Hosea and Pekah and Uzziah and the other Ahaz, not Ahab. And oh, by the way, King Hezekiah is mentioned in there as well. And so not only do you have the kings preceding King Hezekiah, you have Hezekiah himself, and oh, by the way, the guy that takes credit for writing about King Hezekiah is Sennacherib. So, so you have the very king of Assyria that's named here in our Bibles, writing on multiple cuneiform tablets, the sum and the total of them, by the time all of the excavations were done, uh, is more than 22,000 tablets of varying sizes, some of them very small, some of them full panels on a wall. They say things like, I, King Sennacherib, felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword, and I carried off their prisoner and their possessions, and before Jehu, I paraded them. So we have a biblical king, we have a biblical Assyrian king doing battle in exactly the same region and the city that is taken is named by name and so we find that city and guess what? It's been destroyed and oh, by the way, guess what we find in the walls? Iron Age swords, Iron Age spear tips and Iron Age arrowheads which all date and tied directly to the Assyrian army because they were the only army at that time that that used those implements. And so these are very important things for us when we look at our Bible. We're not just looking at some made-up weird name. Now, let's be honest. Probably many of you have looked at the names of the kings in the Bible and said, somebody made that up because they are weird, amen? It's It's not like Bob. It's not like, you know, Prince Steve or what, you know, it's not like that or, you know, Jeff the Conqueror. No, it's all these names which we're, we're thinking, it's like, ah, somebody, you know, I guess that's probably true, but it's not necessarily true. Well, the fact of the matter is these are real people that really documented their lives and they really left us a tremendous amount of information. So from 1949 to 1961, Dr. Henry... Um, Mallow excavated at Kalu, which is, which is modern-day Nimrud, it's near Mosul, it's between Mosul and the ruins of Nineveh. And, and by the time he was done, he found the gates to Sennacherib's palace, he found Sennacherib's throne, he found Sennacherib's prism, he found Sennacherib's chronicles, he found all of this information that documented what Sennacherib did to the Hebrew people, including enslaving them. And so when you look at these particular passages, and then you look that they found a a cache of almost 200 tons of Iron Age implements and weapons in this excavation, and then you date this time to the early Iron Age, you kind of come away with this as like, Man, this guy that's talking in this passage, this guy that sent a representative that's the king of the Assyrian Empire, actually went to Judah because he names Judah as the place that he attacks and takes the Hebrews from. Church, 
this library that housed clay tablets, some 22,000. You can find the fragments. Uh, if you go to the British National Museum today, there is a whole section of the, of the museum that's dedicated uh, to the Assyrians, specifically to the Neo-Assyrians, the latest Assyrian um, kings. Now you know why the prophet Jonah did not want to go speak to the Ninevites and preach Christ, you know, basically to bring salvation to them. They hated him. And they had hated him for a very long time because they had captured his fellow citizens of Judah. They had taken him captive. He wasn't going to preach God's message to the Ninevites. There's no way. He had heard of the siege of Lachesh. He, he maybe even had seen, at the time, we don't know where these pieces originally were because it was often that the Assyrians carried them with them and they would plant them in places where they did destruction and then they would take them when they left that area, they would remove them. And so it could be that the Jewish people were walking through a city gate and there it was, Sennacherib's prism. And they would read and what happened to their people that were no longer there. And so when you read your Bible... I want to strongly encourage you, during that 12-year archaeological dig, there were thousands of pieces of biblically significant relics, archaeological artifacts, that, that turned up that verified that the words that you're reading are true. They're not a made-up story. They're actually history. And so if God took the time to record this history... He, he must have had a reason behind it. And I believe there is a reason. And so we have this king that's laying siege, and we know what he is about. If you're interested in these things, they're just unlimited. Praise God. You know, I'm one of those geeks that still likes books. But praise God for the amount of things that you can study online that cost you nothing. You know, it used to be in, in not that long ago that you had to attend a, a very high level of college somewhere in order to even have access to a lot of this stuff. Now it's almost all available online. Um, so there's three books I would recommend to you, and they're on that slide there. It's the Treasures from Assyria in the British National Museum by Harry Abrams, um, The Royal Inscriptions of Mesopotamia by Kirk Grayson, and Civilization Before Greek and Rome by H.W. Skaggs. Um, those are books. If you want to hold books, if you're one of those book people, if you're a book person like me and you like to just hold books, I see, to me, there's something satisfying about turning pages. Doing this does nothing for me. I'm like, irritating. I do this, but I don't like this. I like this. I like the crinkle of the pages. I like to stick, I hang my pen on it, close the book so that I remember where I was, that type of thing. But there are also a lot of websites that you can go to. Biblicalarchaeology.org is great. Um, Biblicalarchaeologyreport.com. The British Museum has a fantastic, um, wonderfully done uh, whole section on, on the Assyrians. Um, there is an archaeological park in Iraq dedicated to this particular group of people. Uh, so the SinasherabArchaeologicalPark.com and then BibleHistory.com. If you like this kind of stuff and you want to see how your Bible stacks up against 
what we know from history, then I want to strongly encourage you to do it. You know, Christians for a long time have been kind of taught to separate their mind from their spirit. It's like, oh, this is spiritual stuff, and we do this spiritually, and we kind of think about it a little bit. But I want to ask you to just engage the whole of you in the study of God's word. Use every ounce of your intellect and dig until you can't dig anymore and study to show yourself approved workmen and approved women of God that are able to rightly divide the word of truth. So when someone asks you of the hope that lies within you, you can give them an account of why you believe the Bible is true. And these historical chapters do that for us in a very, very wonderful way. So there's some further study for you. Back to our passage. You see, the truth is that crises come when circumstances seem to be at their best most of the time. And the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews were absolutely aware of this. Um, king Hezekiah was a great king. He wasn't a good king. He may have been the best king. Uh, in my opinion, he, he may have been the greatest of all the Israelite kings. Certainly David would be high on that list. But I think Hezekiah, in many ways, because of the reforms uh, of the spiritual health of the nation, uh, was even greater. He tore down the, the idols. He returned service to the temple. He, he got rid of the high places. He banished the, the worship of Molech and Ashtaroth and Baal and Mammon, these false Canaanite gods that the children of Israel messed with constantly. And so Hezekiah was a great king, but he wasn't a perfect king. He himself had a, had a couple of things, and we're going to see that as we finish up these next several chapters. He had a couple, of, a couple of issues. Can I tell you something about humankind? We all have issues. We all have issues. We all have issues, every last one of us. I have not met a person yet. I don't suppose I ever will until I go home to be with Jesus that is perfect. That, that has everything exactly as the Lord wants it in their lives. And King Hezekiah, according to Second Chronicles, so you can read uh, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and see some more of this history. So in chapter 32 of Second Chronicles, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. Man, does that just strike you? It's like, wow, that doesn't make any sense. After all that King Hezekiah had done, Second Chronicles 32.1 says, it was then that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. It was when everything was going awesome. There's really only two ways that you can take this. Either God commanded the Assyrian armies for a purpose, or the devil stimulated the Assyrian army for his designs. One of those two things almost assuredly has to, has to play into this. And in this case, I believe that it was actually the Lord. I think the Lord used the Assyrian army to teach the children, the remnant that is called Judah, what's left of Israel, a very powerful lesson. Because church, you cannot ever trust this world. 
You can't trust in it. You can't trust it to do right by you as a believer. You, you just can't go there. And so I think God is disciplining uh, the children of Israel to, to teach them to simply trust him. As one of the things that I would share with you tonight, I think the Lord is allowing a lot of these things. You know, sit there and think about what's going on right now. We have a full-blown raging pandemic. We have enough of California is now on fire that it is the size of the state of Connecticut. Okay, that's what's burning right now in the state of California. We have already lost more than the total gross domestic product of the entire nation due to the COVID pandemic. It's gone. It's earning capacity that hasn't earned anything. It went away. So we're borrowing money to make up for that. You think we got a crisis going on? Could it be that God is actually trying to speak to America? Could it be that the Lord is simply trying to get us to trust in him again and stop trusting in horses and chariots and, and governments and governors and presidents and all these things? And none, I'm not trying to say that there's anything wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. Just as I said on Sunday, it's not wrong to have wealth. It's wrong to worship wealth. It's not wrong to have freedom. It's wrong to worship freedom instead of the Lord. Do you understand what I just said? We have a lot of people in our country that worship freedom instead of the Lord. We're, we're going to celebrate Patriot Day tomorrow. Praise God for the foundation of this country being patriotism, being freedoms. But those freedoms can't set you free from sin and death. They can only provide you with an environment that is much easier than the rest of the world. And so I think the Lord may simply be allowing these things in our lives so that we will look to him as the only solution because that is the only place that the children of Israel, the remnant, Judah, is going to be able to go. They're going to be tempted to go to the next most powerful government. That would be Egypt. We've already seen them do that. But even great King Hezekiah, we find in 2 Kings 18, is going to put his trust in treaties and treasures. Treaties and treasures are a poor substitute for the King of Kings. They're a poor substitute. Doesn't mean that treaties aren't good. I've read a little article today that perhaps President Trump's going to end up getting nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for what's happened in the Middle East. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. That there are now El Al jets flying into the United Arab Emirates. Praise God for that. But can I tell you, that isn't going to fix what's wrong with this world. It's not. It's a good thing. But those treaties aren't going to fix the problem. The problem is the heart of man. The problem is the deceitfulness of riches. The problem is the wickedness of the human condition. Whether we like it or not, most of us are born fairly selfish. Amen? You want to see that? If you have two kids, ask me how many times they fought before they were two. It's like a constant thing. It's like, no, I want that. No, I want it. No, I want it. You don't have to teach them that. You do not have to teach children to be evil. 
they naturally gravitate towards selfishness, don't they? If you're a parent, say amen. They do. They gravitate towards themselves. They like they have like their own little orbit. And they're in it. And they're the only thing in it. And not one of us was any different when we were little. Some of us find the Lord and we, we try and spin out of that orbit and try and gravitate around planet Jesus, you know what I mean? But, but sometimes the world thinks that the solutions are here and they're not here. It doesn't mean that we don't try. It doesn't mean that we don't love our country. I love this country. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. As messed up as things are right now, this is still the best place on earth to live. There is no place like here. Amen? There's no place like here. There's no place as safe as here. Look, we're outside. Oh, gee, that's terrible. What is it, 69 right now? Exactly what everyone wants their inside to be? Yeah, we, we, we sit there and we think about it and we start to trust in other things instead of the Lord. That was their problem. There was a cause for this crisis. You see, when you learn the lessons that God wants you to learn, the enemy's going to try and convince you that you're going to get to keep the things that he's baiting you with. You're going to keep that ill-gotten wealth. You're going to get to keep that freedom that you worship, instead of your freedom in Christ, your freedom, you're going to have it, but you're going to be in bondage some other way. Maybe you end up in bondage to materialism, or maybe you end up in bondage to power. You see, you can be completely free and still not be free if you're not free indeed. And so Hezekiah needed to learn that there was a price for that freedom and it was really high and church can I just say this to you the devil never tells you the cost of your sin never he does not tell you what it's going to do to your family he doesn't tell you what it's going to do to your mind he doesn't tell you what it's going to do to your finances he doesn't tell you what it's going to do to your family. He just goes, oh, this will be great. Sin, though pleasurable for a season, the end thereof, the end of it, is death. He doesn't tell you that part. This is, oh, it'll be better. Just do it this way. Don't trust in the Lord. What has trusting in the Lord ever done for you? Then you sit there and think about, well, what has trusting in this world ever done for you? If you really want to be accurate, you need to look at things equally. We need to study oranges and oranges, amen? <laughs> look, the sad truth is your first breath is your first breath that you're heading towards your last breath, amen? You're all going to die someday. Me, the way things are going right now, that doesn't sound like all that bad, really. You know, it's like I don't wake up in the morning and go, man, I hope I live to be 105. I told somebody one time, I said, you know, the reason that you're living so long is God doesn't like you. I had to repent, but you know, it's like, I must not want you in heaven. That's why you're still here. I don't know what's going on. 
No, it's not like, it's like for us, we die, we go home to be with the Lord. Amen? So, so there really isn't anything to lose. There's everything to gain. And when you start trusting in the world, you're giving something up. You're not gaining anything. You're giving something up. The question is, what is it? For a lot of people, it's our character. For a lot of people, it's that, it's that beautiful peace that we have in our souls. But we can't explain. That's why Jesus said, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives you peace do I give you. I give you my peace. The peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, that peace. You see, the world doesn't offer that. The world offers the next test. The world offers the next kingdom. The world offers the next king. And Jesus is offering you the final king and the final kingdom, the ultimate prize. Hezekiah needed to learn that lesson. And so there's a purpose here. And so in all of this, and as we now dig into this passage, the lesson is actually very simple. As the Assyrians had ravaged Judah, now from Lachesh, they're about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. They're in 2 Kings 18. We find out that there are three people that, that come in this delegation. So there's a, a, a delegation really that contains uh, the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh. So you have the supreme com commander, that would be like a very high-ranking general. You have the chief officer, that would be like a colonel, a battlefield officer. And, and you also have uh, the chief of princes or the secretary of state. So here's this delegation that's going to go to Hezekiah. That's who's coming, that's who's about to speak. And, and during this time, these three men are met by exactly the same people that are in Judah, but their character is very different. You see Eliakim, the keyholder, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, who's the recorder. Basically, it's a lower-level delegation. It's not the king himself. It's not even the representative of the king. It's kind of like the accountants went out to meet with them. So you have, here's the accounting group. And you have the supreme, supreme commander, the chief officer, and the field commander of the Assyrian army. So you have the arm of flesh. And you have God's scribes, the ones that hold the word, the ones that lock up the Torah scroll at night, the ones that have their hand on God's heart because they have their hands and their minds and their hearts in God's word. You have God's delegation that is spiritual, and you have the world's delegation, which is carnal. It's flesh versus spirit. It's that simple. And now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And then the king of Syria sent the Rabshakeh, with a great army from Lachesh to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, and he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. And then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, 
what confidence is this in which you trust? And I say to you, having plans of power for war, that they are mere words. And now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which of a man leans. It will go into his hand and pierce it. And so is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Do you see the psychological warfare? So you guys are nuts. You're absolutely out. You believe what? King Hezekiah? Isn't that the guy that tore down the altars? Weren't you guys kind of happy over there getting drunk and doing all that stuff with the Canaanite goddesses? Wasn't that kind of awesome? And now you're trusting this guy? You don't even have any pleasure. You're locked in your own city and you're going to die. Let me tell you how you're going to die. A lot of what's being said here is very much what the world says to you. Well, you better get out of this Christian thing while you can, man. Your life's passing you by. You're missing out on a lot of really good stuff. You're trusting that Jesus, he's not even real. What are you doing being a Christian in this world? I mean, who wants to be one of those? I mean, after all, how are you going to get by with Uncle JoJo's Hard apple cider if you, you stay a Christian. So he, the bait that's thrown at us every single day is this stuff right here. It's like, oh, man. Well, I, I, I'm, I don't know what that is. Praise God you don't know what that is. You're not missing a thing. God's got you. God's got us. These guys were ignorant of the worship of God. The Rabshakeh might have been powerful. He might have had an army. But he was also going to perish eternally. Verse 7, but if you say to me, and I'm going to read the rest of this as a narrative because that's really what it is. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah is taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore I urge you to give pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses. I'm going to give you an ATM card and it's going to have your picture on it. I'm going to pre-fill your bank account with all kinds of goodies. And you know what? You're never going to gain a pound. You're going you're gonna to look like the Botox princess. You see, you see, the world throws you stuff and says, oh, world's passing you by, man. I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you're able to on your part, to put riders on them. So it's like, you guys are so pathetic. I could give you the horses, and you have to give me an army. You don't even have an army. This is full-on getting in their heads. It's like, they're, they're probably starting to think, it's like, oh, man, he's right. We don't have any soldiers. How then will you repair, repel one captain of the least of my master's servants? 
and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Have I now come up without the Lord against this land? He's basically saying, look, the Lord's on our side. God's with us. And the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. He's lying through his teeth. He's saying, we have the Lord. You don't have the Lord. Now, you may not have the world tell you that it's the Lord, but what it says says pretty much the same thing. Your God can be health. Your God can be wealth. Your God can be power. Your your God can be your, your, your next experience, your next whatever. And then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. But do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of all the people who are on the wall. Now get this. They're basically saying, you're scaring the people. Speak to us in Aramaic. Now Aramaic is actually Paleo-Hebrew. It's kind of an ancient Hebrew. But it's so strange that there are very few people left on the earth who can actually speak Aramaic today, and there's lots of people who speak Hebrew. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who eat and drink their own waste with you? (laughs) He's saying, it's like you guys are out of food. You're drinking from the sewer. And then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew. Uh, Can I tell you something? The world doesn't listen to you. The world doesn't care what you think. The world doesn't care that it hurts. The world doesn't care that you're being thrashed. The world doesn't care that your life's coming undone. The world wants what the world wants. The devil wants what the devil wants. And he will extract any price from you. He does not care. But God does. God cares. That's not what he wants for you. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Now he's yelling to the people on the wall. He's hoping to incite an insurrection. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. This is how the world works in your life. Don't listen to that pastor. Don't listen to the Bible. What are you doing? Are you daft? Are you crazy? Are you nuts? Don't listen to the Lord. There is no Lord. The only Lord is money. The only Lord is power. The only Lord is sex. The only Lord is something, and you can't get it at church. You don't want what they have. You want what the world has. That's what the world does. The world yells at you. Don't listen to King Hezekiah. Make peace with me. Buy a present. In other words, bribe me and come out to me. And every one of you will eat from his own vine, every one from his own fig tree, every one will drink waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own. He's basically saying, We're going to take you someplace really nice. It's a full-blown lie. The captives that got deported, Sennacherib records on a wall drawing in his capital city as being skinned alive. 
You see, the enemy doesn't tell you what he's going to do to you. He lies to you and says it's going to be really good. It's going to be awesome. You're going to have new fields. Your new husband, your new wife is going to be way better than the one you have right now. A new job. Yeah, of course, you've got to lie every day and cheat people out of their money, but you're going to be rich and it's going to be fine. That, that new house that has twice the mortgage you currently have, that's twice as much house as you actually need, and you're going to have to sell your soul to get it. The enemy's saying, oh, you need that. not going to tell you what it's going to do to your family. It's not going to tell you it's going to deprive your kids of a college education. This is going to tell you the whole story. It's going to say, don't listen to that God guy. What's up with that? That land is going to be a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Again, notice how the enemy works. Throws stuff in your face. Well, you know your Christian friends. They're broke, right? You know your Christian friends. I mean, if they, got, they, they don't have all their problems solved. God never promised to solve all your problems. Save the one problem you really need solved, and that's how are you going to get to heaven. Didn't promise you uh, complete freedom from everything evil in this world. He said, I have a way through that freedom, and I will get you home. I'll get you through that tribulation, that trial. Where are the gods of Hamath? We've excavated that city. Arphod, we've excavated that city. Where are the gods of the seraphim? Indeed, they have delivered Samaria from my hand. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Just look around you. None of what you believe is true. Let me prove it to you. Go look over there at Hamath, Arphad, Lachesh. There's no God. There's no God. You're an idiot. You're a moron for believing in this God guy. You know what you need to believe in? You need to believe in Assyria. Here's the proof, my army. You're about to die. But they held their peace. They answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to Hezekiah with their clothes torn. They had rent their garments and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Three things. Look at Satan's strategy. He began by attacking their strategy. Then it won't work. They had turned to Egypt, that won't work, broken reed. They had turned to Hezekiah, everything that he had done was now fallen into Assyrian hands. The altars that he'd torn down, they're being worshipped, Assyrians are there. The second thing that you see is he, the, he attacks, Satan directly attacks our trust in God's provision, God's care. It's going to happen to you. The enemy's going to whisper in your ear and go, you don't want to believe in God. 
You want to do the Nacho Libre thing? I believe in science. Can I tell you, you can believe in God and believe in science? Matter of fact, some of the most awesome scientists I know also believe in God. You put those two things together, you got a good deal going. They go, oh, you don't actually believe that God created the universe, do you? Seriously? I always flip it around. But don't you believe that nothing exploded and all of a sudden got ordered and much more highly complex and that nothing turned into something? I think you have more faith than I do. You know, attack God, his provision, his resources, how he works in this world. And a third thing, he's going to attack leadership and he's going to attack your loyalty. The enemy is still going after the church, going after church leaders, and they're dropping like flies. It's time for the church, it's time for its leadership to stand up and just say, you know what, we're going to keep pressing on. We're not going to be moved. Don't really care what you think about it. I care what God thinks about it. And then their loyalty, look how these people responded. They did exactly what Hezekiah told them to do. They didn't say a word. That's faith. God summons us to walk by faith and not by sight. Exactly what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5. We walk by faith and not by sight, lest we deceive ourselves. Every time you look at the world and you start to mistrust God, you're opening yourself up for the enemy to speak into your life. And so church, God had promised to deliver his people from the Assyrian army. And guess what God was going to do? He was going to deliver his people from the Assyrian army. Jerusalem would not be taken. All the people would go into captivity in Babylon, but it wouldn't be Assyria. God's got you well in view. Got your family well in view. He knows what's going on in your life. And he's calling us to the same type of faith. What God promises, God delivers. It's incumbent upon him to do it. We have his word on it. And we can trust him. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. Amen. Praise the Lord for his goodness to us. It's easy to get discouraged, but you only get discouraged when your problems are bigger than your God. If God is bigger than your problems, then you can be encouraged. So let God be bigger than your problems. Father, we exalt you tonight. We thank you for being a big God who's bigger than all of our problems. And we ask, Lord, I want to ask just for those that are maybe struggling tonight, they're just going through a really difficult time. And their Rabshakeh has come and has shouted these threats. The enemy is pounding on them, Lord. I pray that you would send angels to guard their minds, to give them rest, to give them sleep, to 
give them the provision that you want to bring into their lives, to, to grant them peace in the midst of a storm. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us, and we would ask, God, we need a shield. And your word says that thou, O Lord, art a shield about us. You're a refuge from the burning sun. You're the ever-present help in a time of need. You're the rock that we can run to and be safe. And so, Lord, we turn to you tonight. And we invite you to save those who don't know you. Lord, I pray for any that have listened online or they're here in person. That you're crying out to them with your good news, the gospel, that you, Jesus, died for them on Calvary's cross. That they would believe in you and repent of their sin and turn and receive your grace gift, God, that you will save them and forgive them and write their name in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, these things we believe. And so God set those free that are bound by sin tonight. The rest of us who love you, we know you, Lord. But maybe our faith has wavered. We invite you to strengthen our faith. We take you up on that offer that you made to the disciples. You didn't pray to deliver them from evil. You prayed that they might have more faith to stand in the evil day. And so, Lord, we want that faith. We're asking for that faith. Lord, increase our faith. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. And God's people all said, Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.